0: Our text for this morning is the 86th Psalm. I just found out this week that we are done with the study of Mark and that we will be picking up a couple of Sundays on this particular prayer and then we'll be on Labor Day weekend launching into a new series for the fall. And it will be the prophecies of Daniel. We'll be studying the prophecies of Daniel this fall. So look forward to that. But meanwhile, our attention has been focused to this particular psalm, Psalm 86. I'm going to read the psalm in its entirety. It's a prayer. It's a prayer of David. Uh, It is an extremely generalized prayer. It's not a prayer of intercession. David is not praying necessarily for others as much as he's praying for himself. And I think it is a prayer guide for us, each of us in our spiritual walk daily. And so hear now the words of Psalm 86. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for your grace in the day of my trouble. I will call upon you for you. Answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaid and servant. Show me a sign of your favor, that those who hate me may see and be put to shame, because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. The word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. You know, there are five books of Psalms, 150 in total, spanning a period of about a thousand years. The oldest one we know of, 9091, probably written, well, written by Moses, no question about it, maybe 1,500. The latter ones, the ones toward the end of the book, in book five, The Ascension Psalms, the Praise Psalms, the Exile Psalms, the Post-Exilic Psalms, all written around 500 BC. So covering that period of time, 1,000 years, they are cumulative. Most of them are written by David, some by Solomon, some by other authors, including the various men who were assigned to the assignment. They were Levites, of course. They were assigned the assignment of leading God's people in worship. The Psalms are both prayers and praises. The Psalms contain in them an enormous amount of theological material. I think I read years ago, and I believe it was Spurgeon, who said that all of the doctrines of systematic theology, all the attributes of God and the rubrics of The person and the work of God is set forth in the Psalms. That just the Psalms alone tell us about God's great attributes and about His great activities. We look at this particular Psalm. It's it's an irregular Psalm. And uh, seeing it, what is required for the, um, the content to be helpful to us. This is a Psalm, no doubt, that was sung But a psalm that was prayed and it has become, along with several other psalms, model prayers. It is irregular in that it is difficult to to, um, outline and to diagram. But you see repetitions of themes all through there. I want us to go through this psalm really phrase by phrase or verse by verse. This morning we'll cover about half of it and then next Sunday we'll finish it out. But as I always say, many of you have heard me say this over the years, that when you read the Psalms, you need to read the Psalm. What is the Psalm saying? And you need to think of some people in the Psalm. Think first of all of God. His great attributes. What does it say about God? What does it tell us about God? And the whole range of God from His most severe wrath all the way to His tenderest mercy are set forth and extolled in one psalm or another. What does this particular psalm say, or any psalm as you read it, say about God? We'll see that as we look at this one. There are things that are said about our Lord. What is said about David? Uh, Sometimes we can tell the circumstances. We know, of course, the great penitential Psalm 51 was David's prayer of repentance following his great sin with Bathsheba. And... Other psalms sort of fit certain parts of David's life. The coronation psalms fit David's coronation as well as that of Solomon, the great coronation of the the prince of peace, the son of David, when Solomon was uh, uh, crowned king. Uh, There are numerous psalms that talk about the life of David and things that are in David's life. The most interesting thing about David is he's called a man after God's own heart. But there's a sense in which he is also a man after our hearts. Because David had all of the emotions that you can possibly imagine. The feelings, the the circumstances of life. Very few men in the ancient world knew uh, terror and war and bitterness. David's life in many ways was a life of a savage he had to live that way in order to protect himself and others. And yet, he was known finally in his uh, funeral, they said he was the sweet psalmist of Israel. How can you go from those extremes? From having the, the war cry on your mouth to the sweetest psalms upon your lips. And so David follows that range of emotion the same as we do. Which leads me to the third Uh, person we should look at in the psalm and that is ourselves now i'm not a real big believer in this way of preaching that most that most preachers are preaching nowadays where they try to read you yourself into the book i understand that by way of application it's very important for the lord to speak to you out of the book but to find yourself in every story You know, which one of the three wise men am I in this? I'm just kidding about that. But, you know, you've heard heard it done quite often. You try to read yourself. That's not what I'm entirely suggesting. What I'm suggesting is let it come out. Let it come out of the Scriptures and you say, that is myself there. I feel that way or I have thought that way or I need that. Or that is my circumstance. That is my condition. And so look for yourself in the psalm and see what is there for application. And the fourth person we need to look at when we read a psalm, and I'm not saying that every one of these are in every verse, but pretty much all four of these uh, uh, people or beings, persons, are in the psalm in its entirety. You'll find at least one place in the psalm where you'll find, and in all the psalms, they are really about Christ. And some of the great expositors, including uh, uh, the, uh, the great Puritan writer who wrote in the 1500s and early 1600s. Actually, he wrote during the uh, Elizabethan uh, era of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, he, David Dixon uh, says that, um, that actually the Lord is in this psalm from His incarnation to His ascension. Now, I will see the Lord in this psalm, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I see Him here in His infancy. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maid servant. That's Jesus. You remember Mary said, I am the handmaiden of the Lord there in the, in the Magnificant. And so you'll see Christ in the psalm. And you'll certainly see the work of Christ. You'll see redemption and intercession and a lot of other things. So, so always look for Christ in the psalm. Now some of them are very obvious. Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 110, Psalm 23. Even it's even Psalm 1. Blessed is the man well, that man is Christ. He is that exemplary man that meditates upon the Word that, that is fruitful, is planted by the rivers of, of living water. And all of that sort of thing you'll see as you look through it. But let's, let's uh, take a moment now and just uh, isolate upon this particular psalm. In order to have a prayer, you have to have at least three things. Access to God. Audience with God. And acceptance from God. Now this is not an overall outline of the sermon nor of the psalm. This is just some preliminary matters. This is prolegomena to praying. Access to God. Audience with God. God hearing you. And acceptance from God. Think for a moment, believer. We have every bit of that in Christ. We have access to God because He, in His high priestly work, with the tearing of His own flesh upon the cross, tore the partition, the curtain that divided the holy place from the holiest of holy place from the top to the bottom. The veil was rent in twain. Torn in half by the flesh of Christ in His crucifixion. When He did that, He opened the door, the access, so that we can now approach boldly the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in time of trouble. And that is precisely a thesis statement of what this particular psalm is. It is having access, also audience with God. The psalmist prays that the Lord would Hear him, would bow down and incline his ear, and God would listen to him. We have to have audience with God. There is no way in the world we have the ear of God apart from the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has not only opened the door, but he has granted us a hearing. He has given us a place in the throne room of God. He's called the throne of mercy that we may obtain help. So we come to the, to, the, to the mercy seat, the throne of God, to bring our pleas and our petition. And then acceptance with God. What fellowship hath light with darkness? The answer is none. Habakkuk cried out that, Lord, thou art of two pure eyes. To behold iniquity. God cannot countenance us. He cannot look upon us. He cannot give us one bit of acceptance. Apart from the finished work of Christ. Christ has satisfied. He's removed all of the enmity. He has reconciled us to God. God. He has brought us into the presence of God that we may be accepted. Any words of condemnation, any smidgen of wrath that may remain in a righteous and a pure God has been placated and propitiated in the death of Jesus Christ. So it is Christ Himself who makes our prayers possible. That's the work of the high priest. The high priest is a way maker. He is a He is a pontificate. He is a bridge builder. And that's who Jesus is. So we have prayer only because we have access and audience and acceptance with God through Jesus Christ. So we're talking about the prayers of the saints And it has been suggested that this particular prayer is a prayer of all saints. There's not one bit of difference between the particulars of this prayer as prayed by David and what any saint in the New Testament can pray or any saint of the Old Testament can pray. Now I know a lot of people really continue to be confused a lot about Old Testament framework and this and that and Old Testament salvation in Old Testament ways in New Testament ways. But I, be, I will urge you to understand that there is a whole lot more continuity and consistency between the Testaments when rightly understood in their relationship to each other than there is conflict or discontinuity or contrast. A man upon his face praying to Almighty God, let's just say someone like Enoch. And... The Apostle Paul upon his knees praying to God. Same, same thing. Unworthy sinner. Made worthy by Christ. Praying to the same God. When That's what James makes his appeal. He said, Elijah was a man of prayer, but he was a person just like we are. And it was a fervent, effectual prayer of the righteous that avails much. Prayer in the Old Testament, prayer in the New Testament, the same exercise. We are wired for prayer to communicate with God, to, to speak with Him, and to pour out our heart. And that's exactly what is going on here. It's a it's a um, this is a prayer of many petitions. it's it's a personal prayer. This is a prayer where you can feel heaven and earth touching. And there are several petitions. The first one, that we mentioned already, is an audience with God. There is a prayer for protection in life. A prayer for mercy and forgiveness. A prayer for comfort and deliverance. A prayer to keep from falling into temptation and sin. Remember the Lord's Prayer. The Lord brought these elements forward in his model prayer. There's prayer for strength to stand, but sometimes we learn a little bit about the beginning when we look at the very end. Look at the very last phrase of the psalm. It says, Show me a sign of Your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. We'll talk about what that is all about next week. But listen, Because You, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. God physically, deliberately, deliberately, helps us. He rescues us. He pulls us out. He delivers us. It is a physical deliverance. Quite often from bad health, from a circumstance, from hostile uh, enemies, and just any number of things in which we need uh, the Lord to physically actually deliver us. To cause the the harm to go away or to, to not have the 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 sun strike us by day, or the moon by night. But then it's also comfort. With the physical help comes the emotional support, the emotional strength. The Lord is our salvation and our comfort. And the psalmist here has has experience with the Lord and says, I because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me, so here, uh, this is a prayer. It's addressed to God. It's prayed uh, as we would today, as the saints of all ages pray it. Most of the time, in fact, I, I sort of did a little quick check this morning. I might have missed, missed something. But every time the word Lord is used, it's the word Yahweh in the Hebrew text. And of course, it's sometime, it was transliterated Adonai my Lord, but, it, but it's the personal name of God. So it is, a, it is a prayer to a person. It's not praying to an amorphous, transcendent, unapproachable deity. David has this relationship with God of mercy and forgiveness. And this finished work of Christ has already laid down the foundation for David's standing in prayer. And if you'll, if you'll notice that this whole thing is prayed as a servant would pray to a loving, gracious, forgiving master. And so that's what that's what we see in here. So let's just look at the, the, uh, the, the verses rather quickly to see some of the things that might be helpful there. First, David says that he, he prays that the Lord would incline his ear. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. We are to bow down before the Lord, but here he's asking the Lord to bow Toward us. That's because we are low. We are lowly. We are lowly as a creature. In our creaturehood. But we have also low in our sin. And our weakness. And our unworthiness. We are uh, abased. We are little. We are weak. We are dependent. We are poor and needy. We are without sufficiency. And so the Lord is immediately has to make that accommodation. The Lord has to bow down to us. We do not uh, call out to Him and elevate ourselves to Him and move, as it were, to get His attention. We must call upon Him and He must take the initiative. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trust in you, you are my God. The word there, preserve, is the the word that is used uh, in the Old Testament in the Garden of Eden to guard. So what he's asking is that the Lord would would preserve his soul, would guard it, would protect it. And he makes an appeal here which is kind of interesting when he he says, um, for I am godly. That sounds for a moment there like we're pleading our own merits but what it is is the redeemed of the Lord who are righteous in Christ who have a confidence that they have been released and forgiven of their sins that they are no longer under the pain and the penalty of their sins the curse of the law that is the curse is death has been removed in the, in the case of the saint and we are pleading our uprightness and actually, it's a difficult translation, but some have tried. Sometimes it says holy, as our text calls it here, righteous. I am devoted. I am dedicated. I am beloved. Uh, in some cases, it's innocent. I am pleading my own innocence. You remember Job did this in, in several places in Job, in Job, Job 27. Job had not done the sin that his comforters, comforters, tried to tell him and convince him that he had committed and he needed to repent. He had not committed the sin. He, he pleaded to God to hear him in his innocence. Not in his sinless perfection, but in his innocence. He pled his upright life. He pled basically what they're accusing me of. I did not do. I'm innocent, O oh Lord, of this particular sin. And so the, the Lord is called upon not because we're worthy for Him to hear us, but He's called upon because the provision has been made. And we stand as well as we could possibly stand before the Lord in that status of having been forgiven. And, and the literal understanding of I am innocent would certainly apply to Christ, wouldn't it? In Christ in His suffering when He called upon the Lord. Because everything Christ was accused of in His life that was breaking of the law, breaking of the Sabbath, tearing down the temple, all the things that they tried to accuse Christ of in his life, he, he didn't do it. He was absolutely innocent of blasphemy and insurrection and all the things that he was accused of. So, so that's, the, that's the plea uh, that is here. It says, you are my God. It is a, it, it is a, a declaration that, that you are my sole source. God, we're not asking God for something and then asking another deity and asking someone else and asking someone else. It is an exclusivity, a uniqueness of God, a, a total dependence upon God in our prayers. Uh, I suppose we're all guilty somewhat. I pray to the Lord for something, but then in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, do I have money in my bank account to pay for that? You know, I'm praying to the Lord and my bank account. I'm praying to the Lord and maybe somebody that can do something for me. This is the psalmist in, in this obvious instance, Christ who is wholly commending Himself to the Lord. Be gracious to me, O God, for to You do I cry all the day. Everyone needs mercy. And the crying of all day, the pleading of all day is, is not just boring repetition, which Jesus condemns in pagan praying, incantation, repetition, but it is importunity. It is that thing that Jesus talked about when He talked about the woman begging the unjust judge to give her what she wanted. It was a a continual pleading. It was an asking, asking, asking over and over when finally even the unjust judge says, okay, okay, you can have it. Well, imagine what a loving and just father would do. And Jesus keeps trying to tell us that's the kind of father we have. If we ask for bread will he give a serpent if we ask for something good will he give something evil and so the, the continual asking uh, one commentator i read talked about how a baby's cry a baby cries over and over and again and again but it's not the same cry the mother can tell if it is a cry of pain if it is a cry of weariness if it's a cry of hunger if it's, if it's a desperate cry like I must come now, or whether it's one of those cries where they're just sort of letting themselves unwind and as many wise parents know, sometimes you just let them cry themselves to sleep. Well, that's the way these, this is with the Lord. It is, there's a cry, but it's not always the same cry coming from the same heart and the same need. And our Father in Heaven knows what our needs are and responds to us. But what we're doing is crying. We're just crying with the impulse, but the Lord hears our every plea. We are to ask, to plead every day. We're to look to the Lord always. Paul says, pray without ceasing. Doesn't mean we'll be on our knees and at the kneeler in the chapel all day long. It means that we'll have a constant attitude of prayer, of thinking of what we need to do to bring something to the Lord in prayer. And then let's hurry along to verse 4. Verse um, 4. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. The lifting up here is the picture always of lifting something up to the Lord. It's an offering. It's the heave offering. It's the wave offering in the Old Testament. When they would wave the grain and when they would have the offering that would be dedicated, it was the, it was the lifting up and the pouring out of the drink offering. It, it is what Paul refers to that our lives are to be like a living sacrifice. It is a lifting up of, a, of an offering to the Lord. And so uh, here, once again, it's the personal name of God. This is an um, a, a, uh, uh, exclamation of the joy of being totally given over to the Lord. Uh, maybe we don't know that as well as we should. Maybe we don't know that joy. I, I remember as a youth meeting uh, some missionaries. And I couldn't believe their perspective on life. As I sat and talked to them, the amount of sacrifice and dedication, the suffering, the inconvenience, uh, the lowest state they had, they were back here in the States on furlough, and they were living basically an impoverished life. And I can remember just being extremely overwhelmed at, at that, that, that sweetness and that attitude of we've given it all to the Lord and the Lord will take care of us. And just this total dependence of... It was just unheard of me in my you know, culture in which I was reared. And most of you probably were in a similar culture where it's abundance and self-reliance and, and planning and, and all of the other things. But instead of just being having our soul... And it's, it's the old good old word in the Hebrew used over and over and over. The nephesh. God breathed into the nostrils of Adam and He became a living nephesh. It's to give our whole being as created by God back to the Creator. Uh, Which is, of course, Paul says in in Romans 12, your reasonable service of lifting up our soul into the Lord. And then there's a gladdening of the heart that comes, a a lightness, a a relief, a release that comes when we have, have laid it all Upon the sacrificial altar for God. That is a, uh, that's a strong um, position to be in as a Christian. It takes much, much time for most of us to get there. So most of us are not there. But, I, but, it, but it's, it's a place that is aspirational, I think, for the mature believer. Verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. This is, of course, giving the attribute to God that He is good and forgiving. I think that's a Christmas song. We talk about something the Lord is ever giving and forgiving. And that's, and that's what we see here is this, this attribute of God. And then he's, he mentions this, this well-known word of steadfast love. And he'll, he'll expand it and mention it again in the second part of the psalm. But this is one of the foundational words that describe the character of God. God is, is um, abounding in steadfast love faithfulness it's translated loving kindness I always liked that word in the King James growing up I liked the word loving kindness but it goes beyond just kind of a sentimental notion but to a rock-ribbed solid promise that we're living in relationship to a covenant keeping God there's no variance. There's no shadow of turning. There's no possibility God will fail and, and fail to keep His Word and fail to keep us. So when we call upon the God that we're praying to, that's who He is. He has an abundant storehouse of mercy. Uh, there's whole sections of this in Psalm 45 and in Psalm 10 uh, on this, this concept of God's loving kindness. And then verse 6. This is I got hung up on this verse because I just, just kept getting... Fuller and fuller. He says, give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. And it says, listen. And actually, it's give ear. It, it's alliterative in the, in, in the original. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Give ear to my plea for grace. And so as I begin to sort through that and, and, and look at it, it's, it's give ear, which means uh, listen to me. Give me your ear. But it goes beyond that. He says, give voice to my plea. In other words, it's not only God listening to us. I want you to get this if you don't get anything else. (laughs) It's not only God listening to us, but it's God Himself aiding us in the articulation, the giving voice of our plea. And this is precisely, isn't it, what Paul tells us about in Romans Isn't that amazing? We even need help in our prayers. We need the Lord to step up and give voice, give articulation, give understanding to what our true needs are. We can't say it very well. We can't express it. We don't know our hearts the way the Spirit of God knows our hearts. So this is an interesting plea on the part of David. Very sophisticated Christian David back in the Old Testament understood that God was at work even in His triune uh, deity of helping us in our infirmities and help us, by the way, that particular passage in Romans says, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought there 's something we don 't know. I quit reading there in verse 27, but the next verse says, But we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. we don 't know how we should pray, but we do know God is good. And He's working things according to His purpose for those that are called and loved of God. So that is the, the, uh, the thing. The Lord, give, give uh, ear to my prayer. Listen to my pleas for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you for you answer me. Verse 7. God really does hear and answer prayer. We just need to believe that. Faith is an important component of our prayer. That when you ask, ask believing, that's hard for us to do, I think, sometimes to to really conceptualize that God is actually going to hear the prayer and He's going to answer the prayer and it's very likely He is going to provide what you're asking for in the prayer or provide something better still. And so that is the, the firm foundation of our praying God God knows what we need before we ask. And then to say here, it's interesting in verse 7, says, in the day of my trouble, I will call upon you for you answer me. When's the time to pray? Pray when you need to pray. I remember hearing a preacher one time was counseling a man and a man said, "Uh, uh, I prayed to the Lord and I don't think He heard me and I don't think He answered my prayer at all. And the... the, uh, Preacher asked the man. Said, "Well, what what was your distress?" He said, "Oh, I wasn't in distress." He said, "Well, there you are. <laughs> it's in my distress. I called upon the Lord, and He heard me. The time to pray is right now. It is urgent. It's immediate. It's time to call upon the Lord. Uh, one of the things I see, I watch a lot of YouTube uh, atheists. You know, I listen to all those famous guys that have made their reputation mocking God." One good thing about most of those men, those atheists, you know that you know who I'm talking about Dawkins and Harris and Christopher Hitchens and all those guys. Uh, one thing I've always thought is those guys are brilliant, but yet everything they accuse God of, God's not guilty. They don't like God because God is like this or like that, and that God's not like that. And I want to straighten them out in their theology. Maybe they'll change their mind about God if they knew the truth. But one thing about it, I said, these guys are so bright. They're, they see things. They see shadows and nuances in there. And, and they're so strong mentally. And I'm thinking, you know, God's not going to have to deal with them too long at the judgment. He's not going to have to sit down with those guys and explain to them why they're going to hell. They're bright enough they know it. As soon as they have in God's presence, everything, every blasphemy they've ever had, you know, they'll, they'll know they won't say a word to God because they are guilty and they know it. They're guilty. They know it. God knows it. And it won't be a long, drawn-out trial at their judgment. Well, that's just a little extra sigh. That's just a little emotional release for me having listened. I listened to a bunch of Christopher Hitchens who's dearly departed. He, he knows the truth now. I wish he could be like that guy in the parable, you know, with, uh, with Lazarus, you know, and I wish he could come back and preach. Some of the best preachers you'd ever hear in your life are some of these men that blasphemed God all their life and now they know the truth. And that's one of the things that I get a little uh, weary of sometimes when I hear even preachers always talking about the power of prayer. There's power in prayer. Pray, pray. There's power. No, there's not. There's power in God. The prayer is just the empty-handed, desperate sinner Pleading with God. The power is in the Lord Himself. It's not in prayer. Well, let's look at verse 8 real quick. and says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. The uniqueness of God, the, the transcendence of God, the, the attributes of God are all put in here when they're often a comparison between God and the other claimed supposed deities of humanity. Isaiah deals with that a lot in his prophecies. But, but listen to this particular part. It says, nor are there any works like yours. Normally we think of the works of God under three big categories, don't we? Creation, the works of creation. The work of providence, God's provident care. Video, to see. Vident, to see in advance. Pro, He sees in advance and He provides. And then, of course, redemption. God's saving and His redemptive work. These are the works of God. The works of creation. The works of providence and redemption. The great opus day, God at work. Uh, and here, He praises that. And then finally, let's just stop here at verse 9. All the nations You have made shall come and worship before You, O Lord, and shall glorify Your name. If this was a class, I would ask you to tell me who that is. Listen to that. He says, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. That, my friends, is a beautiful Old Testament picture of nothing other than the one holy apostolic Catholic church. All the nations of the earth gathering and praising the name of our God and His Christ. We'll pick up with this next Sunday and continue and complete, hopefully, this particular prayer. Hope this is helpful. I know it's been sort of uh, um, just advisory more than anything else, but I, I really do believe that it, we need to review our souls. This is an excellent model of prayer to do that.